Welcome to Grace Church. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. So glad to, to have all of you with us this morning. Uh, today we're beginning a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. This little letter, only six chapters, 149 verses long, is, is not a, a big letter, but it is a powerful, powerful letter. My, my goal this morning is simply to give an overview of this, this letter. Um, when we read through this, um, we'll see that you really can split it up into three main sections, all targeting aspects of the gospel and Paul's authority by which he is preaching this gospel. And so while we preach through it um, over the next little while, we'll actually be splitting it up into these three sections that, that you can see as you read through them. It's personal, doctrinal, and practical. The first two chapters, the first two chapters are personal. They look at Paul's life and story as he explains how the gospel has shaped him and how he has seen the, the gospel work in and through him. And then the next, the middle two chapters, are, are they, they are doctrinal and they focus on kind of the nuts and bolts of the gospel and the, the doctrine of the gospel, if you, if you will. And then the last two chapters, uh, we'll look at the, the practical side of the gospel, how to live this out in your everyday life. But this morning... This morning, as we kind of get an overview of this, we're, we're going to begin just looking at these first five verses, Paul's greeting here, because in this greeting, Paul actually gives an outline of the rest of the letter. The, these first five verses contain really the, the outline of the entire letter. And so for the, this morning, for the, the next few moments. Um, we're, we're, I just want to talk through these first five verses and answer three questions. Answer three questions here. Who is writing? To whom is he writing? And why is he writing? And we'll, we'll kind of base this morning off of those three questions. Who is writing? To whom is he writing? And why is he writing? But as, before we begin, can we, can we open with a, a word of, of prayer? God, I thank you so much uh, for who you are. I thank you that you are so gracious and so loving and so kind. And God, I thank you that you choose us. You choose to use us. You choose to speak to us. You choose to reveal yourself to us. And I pray this morning that you would speak, you would move, you would draw us closer and closer to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, who is writing? Who is writing this letter to the, the Galatians? The very first word of this entire letter actually reveals the author. It is Paul. Paul. Paul is formerly Saul. We meet him early on in the, the book of Acts. And when we first meet him, he's actually not a good guy. His name was Saul at this point. And he, this was right after, just a, a little while after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, Paul, or Saul, comes on the scene in, in the book of Acts, and we, we meet him at the end of chapter 8, and then into chapter 9, we see that he is, 
He is furious about this little band of Jesus' followers who are causing a fuss, and they're causing this thing, this thing that is known as the way, and he is out to destroy that. He's out to, to destroy that. And so when we, uh, we, we see Paul or Saul, I'll keep doing that anyway, Saul, he, he, is, um, he, is, he is out at the biggest persecutor of the early church. He is, when, we, when he meets Jesus, right, Jesus interjects himself into Saul's story on the road to Damascus. And he's coming to Damascus with letters from the high priest saying that it was legal for him to kill anybody who was of the way, or as we would call them, Christians. And so he was on this road to Damascus when Jesus interjects himself into, uh, into Saul's story, blinds him, calls him, changes him, saves him, and then Saul becomes Paul. He, he has his name changed, his life changed, and everything becomes different for him. He gives himself to ministry full-time. He goes around preaching the gospel, goes from city to city on these missionary journeys, planting churches in different cities. And when he leaves, when he leaves the city, Often he would uh, he would call back to these these cities. He would check in on them by writing letters to them, by by addressing certain things that he he had heard from them, by by correcting any errors in practice or doctrine. And so many people believe that the first of these letters that we see from Paul where he is writing to these churches that he had been to, where he was planting the churches, a lot of people believe that this, this letter to the Galatians was actually the first of these letters. That this was early on in, in his writing to correct these errors in practice and doctrine, or everybody agrees that if it wasn't the first one, it was at least one of the first Few. And so that's, that's who wrote this, this guy named, named Paul is the one who is writing. And then to whom is he writing? He says in here that he is writing to the churches of Galatia, the churches of Galatia. And there's actually a lot of debate as to whom this refers when it says the Galatians, the churches at Galatia, because Galatia actually refers to two different groups of people. There are the ethnic Galatians, the ones who are, are born in this region. This is, this is a little bit to the north, this region of, of Galatia um, that, that has the ethnic Galatians. And then there is the Roman province that is, that is not necessarily ethnic Galatia, but it is, it is in where we now have modern-day Turkey in, in there. But we, what we see in the book of Acts, even though this is widely debated and confused and everybody has their opinions, what we see in the book of Acts is right in, in, in this southern portion of what is Galatia, there are several churches that Paul actually visited and, or cities that he visited and planted churches in them. And you can see that in, in the book of Acts that Paul is in this area. So I believe uh, I believe that this is to whom he is writing, these, these churches that he had planted it is not to this one, this one area, it's not to one church, it's not to one city, but it is this region of churches, this region of, of cities that he is writing this letter to correct these doctrines that we're going to get to in, uh, in a minute. So then we, we have Paul is the one who is writing uh, the, the churches of Galatia that he had planted or to whom he is writing. And then the third question that we, we're going to answer this morning 
is why is he writing? And don't think because we went through those first two questions really quickly, we're going to be done quick because this is the bulk of the sermon. So sorry to burst that bubble for everybody. Um, anyways, we, uh, we, we can see that he wasted no time, wasted no time addressing the issues that he was writing about. He jumped straight in to address what he was really, really wanting to address. In most of Paul's letters, the, the ones to the church at Rome and Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica, after his greeting, he, he says something along the lines of, I am I thank God for you in my, my prayers. Almost every one of them, that is the line immediately following the greeting. It's Paul, an apostle, this, this, to this church. I thank God for you in my prayers, but not in this one. The first line after he finishes his greeting, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He is wasting no time. He's jumping straight into what he is really, really concerned about. And it is a fact that these people, these churches that he dearly, dearly loves have turned away from the gospel that he shared with them. They turned away from Christ himself. And so we'll see as we read through this, this letter that that is the whole reason he is writing this letter is to address this group of people who have turned away from Christ himself. Even though they didn't see it, he equates turning away from this gospel that he preached to turning away from Christ himself. See, in these, these churches, there were, there were both Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And so after Paul left the, the area, some false teachers came into the area and began to, to teach false doctrine to these, these churches. They began to teach that you had to hold to Jewish practices to be fully accepted by God. So they began to teach that you had to become first a Jew and then you could become a Christian. And so that is the, the false doctrine that had, had come in. They had begun preaching a legalistic gospel that there were these things from the Old Testament that you had to adhere to in order to be a Christian. And so the reason that Paul had to write this letter and the, the reason that he wastes no time jumping right into it is because he knew that the gospel is essential to the Christian faith. Having a right understanding of the gospel is essential to the Christian faith. David Platt in his commentary on Galatians points out that much of the teaching of the Judaizers, these false teachers who came in, was right down the line, biblically speaking. They acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. They even acknowledged his death on the cross. They claimed to believe all the truths that other Christians believed. They, uh, they certainly weren't telling people that they denied the gospel. Instead, they believed they were improving it. 
adding requirements and standards from the old covenant to this new covenant. But the reality is that as soon as you add anything to grace, you lose grace altogether. There is no middle ground. But they came in preaching this gospel plus, this Jesus plus, these rules and these regulations from the old covenant, the old testament. And while they they were teaching these false doctrines, this false gospel, they began to call into question Paul's authority. And so Paul had to address these, these false gospels, this, this false doctrines as in such an urgency that he couldn't, he couldn't even ease into it like he did in all of his other letters. He jumped straight into it right off the bat. He begins right away. I mean, he says his name and then begins to address first his authority that they were questioning, and then clarifies the gospel in these first five verses. He starts off and says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This word, apostle, this word apostle here means, simply means sent one. Sent one, the one who was a, a messenger, he was a, a delegate. There, in, in the New Testament, there were two types of apostles, right? There were two types of apostles mentioned in, in the New Testament. There were those who were sent by a group of, of other religious leaders, of the, the church leaders. There were those that, that were sent, you can see in, in the book of Acts, there were um, Barnabas was referred to as an apostle. And then in, um, in, in the in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, 2 Corinthians 8, um, they, they talk about the, the messengers of the churches. And that word messenger is the same Greek word that we have, apostle. And so there are those who were apostles that were simply sent by the, the church leaders. They were called and commissioned and sent out by the church. And then there was another type of apostle. There was another type of apostle that was called and commissioned and sent by Christ himself. And this was a different type of apostle altogether. You think of the 11, right? The, the 11 disciples who were with Jesus, who were called and commissioned and sent by Jesus himself as apostles. And so Paul declares right off the bat, before he goes any further, before he addresses anything else, before he discusses anything else, he needs to let them know, I am an apostle, not from man, not through man, but through Jesus and God the Father. He wants to declare right away, my authority, my calling, my commissioning, my sending was not of man, but of Christ himself. And in 1 Corinthians, he also talks about his apostleship being from Christ. And he talks about his his encounter on the road to Damascus where he sees Jesus face to face. 
And he meets Jesus face to face and he talks about this being an essential part of him being an apostle of Christ and the other 11 as well. So in Paul's wording, in Paul's mind, in the way he teaches that there are only the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles that walked around with Jesus and Paul that were this type of apostle. So that means you and I are not apostles in this sense, right? We can be sent from a church, but we are not sent in the way that they were apostles. And it's very important that we learn to distinguish the two. So Paul begins to, to share right off the bat, hey, I want everybody at these churches to know that I am an apostle, not because some man or some group of men sent me here to you, but I am an apostle of Christ himself because he called me, he commissioned me, and he sent me. And so this is important not simply because of the ego of Paul, because obviously it's, it's, it seems more important to be, to be an apostle of Christ than an apostle of, of man, right? That, that's, there's something more important of this. It's not just for his ego, but the authority of his message. It is important that he is an apostle not from man, but from Christ himself because of the authority of his message. See, the apostles, the apostles that were the ones that were sent from Christ himself, those were the ones who were his messengers. They were given his message. They had a direct revelation from Christ himself and not just to see him differently, not just to know him differently, but to authoritatively teach his word. See, being an apostle of Christ himself meant that, that what Paul was teaching was authoritative and true. Those who hear his teaching, those who, who hear his gospel should not compare his teaching to the teachings of other teachers as though they are equal. That is what this means. He is saying that, that my teachings are not equal to their teachings. What he is saying is that my teaching is the standard by which you should compare all of these other teachings because my teaching is authoritative and true because my teaching is not my teaching. My teaching is Christ's teaching. So this is very important that he addresses his authority right off the bat because he's saying, no, what I'm about to say is authoritative and true. It doesn't matter what anybody else has said because this is Christ's message, not my message. These are not my words. These are his words. And this is what we mean when we say that, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant. What we are saying is that the words that are on these pages, though they were written by a man or though they were written by a woman, they were not their words. They were God's words. God revealed these words to them. God wrote these words through them. So that's what we mean when we say that, that, that these are not subject to the errors of humanity. These are God's very words. And that is what Paul is getting at here when he says, no, I'm an apostle not from these men, but from Christ himself, that my message, my gospel is authoritative and true. So I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you 
and turning to another gospel. You see, the false teachers were trying to to get at the, the fact that Paul was simply another teacher. He was simply another teacher who had good words to say, but they were worried that his message of grace his gospel of, of grace was a little bit too lenient. And they were, they were worried that his gospel would lead people to abuse the grace of God, that they would use his grace, his free grace gospel as license to sin. So they helped him. They added to his gospel. They, 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 they added his gospel. It became grace plus circumcision, grace plus these rules and regulations of the Old Testament. And they believed it was okay for them to do that because Paul was simply uh, another teacher and they were helping him. They were adding to what he was saying. He, he did not have the full image of what God wanted everybody to know. And so I, I'm willing to share with you what I know to be true about the rest of the gospel. And that is what they were doing. They began to add to his gospel to supplement it. And so Paul had to address first his authority, and then he transitions into clarifying exactly what is the gospel. I love that in verse 7, Paul, uh, Paul calls the gospel that he preached Christ's gospel. He says in, in verse 7 that, that some are there to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's saying, this is not my gospel, it's his gospel. Just outright saying that this is Christ's gospel, I'm just the one sharing this with you. And then this is how Paul clarifies the gospel. And we see it broken up into three verses, three sections as well that we'll see this this morning. There is first verse three talks about it presents the gospel. And then verse four explains the nuts and bolts of the gospel. And then verse five uh, declares the practice of the gospel. It says in verse three, grace to you, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First comes grace. It is a gift freely given, unmerited and unwarranted favor from God. It is not that we deserve it, but that he is so great that he is so loving, that he is so kind, that he willingly gives it to us. Then comes peace. Not just peace with those around us, but peace within and more importantly, peace with God. This is is the, the gospel, grace and undeserved gift from God that makes us who are enemies of God to be at peace with him. It is given freely from him, and it's not something that you can earn. And this is key to this letter, that it is given freely from him, that you cannot earn it. 
It is not something you can earn. This is key to this letter. 18 times throughout this letter, Paul talks about how it is not your works, but grace alone through faith alone. That is 12% of this letter explicitly states that it's not your works, but faith in his work. This is, this is not a, a unique concept to this letter. Paul used this term grace, this idea of grace through faith a hundred times in his writings, which is twice as much as all other New Testament writers combined. Paul was adamant that it is not about your performance, but Christ's performance. I actually did the math on this to make sure that these numbers are correct because I know some of you probably feel like I say this every week. I'm just following Paul's example, guys. This is something that we have to get. This is something that we have to understand because the gospel is essential to faith. He was, he was adamant that it is not about your work, but Christ's work. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. It's not about you learning to live up to this standard. It is about you putting your faith in him. That is essential to salvation, that is essential to walking with Christ. That is essential to knowing who he is. And he goes deeper into this later in the letter that if we add works to the gospel at all, then we, as David Platt said earlier, we lose grace altogether. That if it is grace plus anything, we lose it altogether. It ceases to be grace when we add our works with it. It's something that we think we earn, and that is not grace. So this is the presentation of the gospel, that it is grace and peace from him. Grace and peace from him, something that you cannot earn, something that you cannot work for, something that you do not deserve from him, given freely to you so that you can be at peace with him. And then he goes in to break down the nuts and bolts of it in verse 4, and we're going to split this up a little bit. He begins with Christ who gave himself for our sins. Gave himself for our sins. This is the substitutionary atonement here. He gave himself for our sins. Christ was the willing substitute for me. He took my place. He took my guilt. He took my shame. He took my punishment. He gave himself for my sins. Martin Luther said, of this verse that Christ never gave himself for our righteousness, but he gave himself for our sins because there was no other way of saving us except by a sacrifice for sin. See, we like to think of Jesus' work on the cross simply through the victory of Christ over death, right? It's this, this idea of Christus victor, Christ the, the victor. We, we like to see him who, who took on death and won. We, we like to see him as the one who, who fought sin and fought death and won. That is the Christ that we like to see. But what Paul is saying, that it is not just that he fought death and won, but that he willingly laid down his life for you, that he submitted to death. 
Not that he was just this warrior that, that defeated death, but that he became this innocent little lamb who laid himself on the altar to die for your sins. That is the full picture. He is both. He is the lamb who sacrificed himself for your sins, and he is the warrior who fought death and won. We have to have both. We have to see him as the substitute giving himself for our sins. That is essential to this thing. And then he goes on after he takes his, his sin, my sin upon himself. It says that he did this to deliver us from this present evil age. Present evil age. This word deliver, this verb here, it could be translated as rescue in, in your Bible. It is a, a verb that is used throughout the New Testament. In, in the book of Acts, we see it used a few times as rescue when, when it refers to the, the rescue of Israel from Egyptian slavery and then the, the rescue of Peter when he is in prison and rescue of Peter from the hand of King Herod. And then it is used again as the, the rescue of Paul from the mob who was out to kill him. But then here we have it in Galatians, the only time in the New Testament that it is used metaphorically of salvation. But it is this rescue. Christ died to rescue us. Bishop J.B. Lightfoot wrote that this verb, deliver or rescue, strikes the key note of the entire epistle of Galatians. And he goes on to say that the gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from a state of bondage. Christ's work, his death was a rescue for us. It was to rescue us from this present evil age. Notice that it does not say rescue us from this world, but rescue us from this present evil age. The goal of this rescue is not so that one day we get to heaven, but that right now we can live in the kingdom of God. That now we can be rescued from this present evil age. That right now we can have victory over the, the power of the world. That right now we can be rescued from sin and rescued from that. This is, this is both justification and sanctification in this one rescue. Justification is the, the, the biblical truth, the doctrine that we are declared righteous before God. That in this moment, instantly, you are righteous because of Christ. That is justification. That is here. And then it is also sanctification, which is the daily process of becoming more and more like Christ, the being formed into the image of Christ daily, this sanctification. It is both of those, that both of those are in this rescue. We are rescued from the punishment and the consequences of our sins and we are rescued from the control of sin. We are rescued from the daily temptations of sin. We are rescued from the power of sin that holds us back because we are given the Holy Spirit who lives within us to help us. His death was a substitute. His death was a rescue 
And then Paul goes on and says that it's according to the will of God our Father. According to the will of God our Father. All of this, Christ giving himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. All of this was according to the will of God the Father. Now, I don't know about about you, but I have this tendency to view God the Father as the, the, the judge, the, the angry one, the one who, who sees my sin and wants to punish my sin. Is that just me? Do you have that ever? We see God the Father as the, the God of the Old Testament who, who is ready to punish, but then Jesus comes in and was like, nope, nope, sorry, Dad, I got this one, Right? I, I tend to do that. I, I tend to see God the Father as the one who is vengeance and wrath embodied. And then Jesus as the loving one who stands between me and the judge, the, the, the one who wants to condemn me. And he, Jesus stands between us. But here Paul is very clear that this is not the case. That God the Father is the one who willed that you be rescued. My rescue was from him. He desired that I be rescued from this present evil age, that I be rescued from the punishment of my sins, that I be rescued from the temptations that I currently face, that I be rescued from the power of sin that is currently coming after me, that I be rescued. That is his desire, and he devised a plan for that rescue. This is all done according to the will of the Father and Christ. This is a unified thought of, I want them to be rescued. So all of this in, 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 in verse 4, we can really kind of see that verse 4 teaches us that the nature of Christ's death is a sacrifice for sin. The object of his death is our rescue. And then the origin of his death is the gracious will of the Father and the Son. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that Jesus took the punishment that I deserve on my behalf so that I can know God and live a life of obedience with him. That is the gospel. And then Paul, Paul wraps up this greeting in verse 5 with this doxology. He says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, a proper understanding of the gospel leads to a proper view of God himself. And a proper view of God himself leads us to unadulterated worship. He is that good. And when we realize it, we have no choice but to worship. Without being explicit, Paul 
addresses the fear that his free grace type of gospel that they were concerned about that he preaches will lead people to abuse grace and use it as license to sin. He does not explicitly say that when you understand the gospel, you will not sin. But what he does say is that when you understand the gospel, you will be so amazed by who God is that you will devote all of yourself to glorifying him. That the natural response to understanding the gospel is to give him all the glory, all the honor, all the praise with everything you have. That is the natural response is to devote all of yourself to him. Not to earn anything, but simply as a response. He is so amazing. His love is so beautiful. His grace is beyond words, and you cannot help but worship him. That is the practice of the gospel. That is the practice of the gospel, is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I wonder this morning how many of us actually grasp the gospel. I I don't mean some legalistic or distorted grace plus this version of the gospel. But the actual gospel. I am convinced that if it doesn't seem a bit too scandalous... If it doesn't seem a bit too good to be true, then it's not the real gospel. If the gospel that we believe and know doesn't lead us to glorifying him with everything we have, I'm not sure that we actually get it. If it leads to, well, I have to do this or I have to do that, or if it leads to guilt and shame because we're not doing this and because we're not doing that, I'm not sure we get it. If it leads to anything other than just completely responding to his greatness and his beauty in worship, I'm not sure that we actually grasp the gospel. Because when we grasp the gospel, we see how beautiful he is. We see how awesome he is. And we have no choice but to worship him, to glorify him with all that we have. And if the gospel that we believe leads us to anything other than that, I'm not sure we actually get it. If the gospel we believe leads us to hold anything back from him, I'm not sure we get it. If the gospel we believe means that we have to add something to it, then I'm not sure we get it. I know I say this every week. I know I say this every week, but we have to understand the gospel. 
It is important that we understand the gospel and that we live out of the gospel because it is only with a proper view of the gospel that we can actually have a proper view of God. Because if we don't see the gospel as given to us freely by no work of your own, by no effort of your own, then God is not as loving and gracious and patient and kind as he actually is. If we don't have this view of the gospel, then we diminish the goodness of God. That is why I believe it is so important that we understand the fullness of the gospel because only in understanding the fullness of the gospel can we actually understand the fullness of God. He is so loving that he chose me while I was an enemy. He is so rich in mercy that he took my place so that I don't have to face the punishment for my sin, that I don't have to pay the debt that I cannot pay. He is so gracious that he brought me from being a slave to sin to where now I am a son of God, and not only a son of God, but a co-heir with Christ. He is so patient that he sees all of my faults and he sees all of my daily failures and instead of giving up on me, he loves me still. He pursues me still. He goes to me still to bring me back to himself. This is who he is and honestly, that is only touching the surface of his goodness. That is only touching the surface of his beauty. I heard this week that everybody who believes that they understand the gospel has no clue what the gospel actually is. But those who realize they don't really know the gospel are the ones who actually are starting to learn the gospel. Because the more we learn about the gospel, the more we understand there's so much more to this. This is so much bigger than I can understand. This is so much deeper than I can comprehend. This is so much bigger than I can even fathom that the God who spoke the world into existence cares about me. not just cares about me, not just knows about me, but gave himself for my sins to rescue me from this present evil age because it was his will long before the world even began. That is unfathomable. Because of this, I have no choice but to worship. No choice but to devote all that I am and all that I have to glorifying him because all glory belongs to him forever and ever. Have you experienced that gospel? Do you know this God? 
If you haven't, but you want to this morning, you can. This is the whole beauty of the gospel of Christ that Paul was preaching is that it is given to you freely. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. And the good news for those of you who are like me, you don't have to have perfect belief. It's like the guy who Jesus said, um, said, if you believe, I will heal your son. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't really believe. It's okay if you don't have perfect belief. Just believe. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we don't really have to grasp the fullness of the gospel at this moment, but God, you will reveal over and over throughout the rest of our lives the gospel, the goodness of who you are for us, what you've done for us. And God, I pray that you would speak, you would move, you would draw us to yourself more and more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.